we have um, another Israel event on Sunday evening, February the 16th, with Dr. Uh, Susanna Kokanen, who's the director of the Christian Friends of Yad Vashem. She's the director of the Christian Desk at Yad Vashem. Uh, John was telling me earlier that he had um, gotten on their website and had been doing some research on their website, and I would encourage you to do that prior to uh, that event. If some of you have been to Israel with me, and we've gone through uh, Yad Vashem to some degree, and so that's really a... um, And if you've never been to the Holocaust Museum here in Houston, that's something uh, that I'd encourage you to do at, at some point. I think that's the only uh, event. I, I keep getting these emails. So apparently people sleep through the announcements. I'm here tonight. <laughs> I won't be here Thursday night. Thursday night there will be a great DVD with, um, that's the night that we're going to show the D- DVD from Michael uh, Rydelnik, and he's the head of the Jewish Studies Department at Moody Bible Institute, so you're going to, uh, enjoy that, and um, he'll be giving his personal testimony. So that's Thursday night. Tommy arrives Saturday. Tommy will be teaching Sunday morning, Tuesday night, Thursday night, and the next Sunday morning. Okay, and his topic is going to be on the Olivet Discourse. That's in Matthew chapter 24. I don't have any idea how long or how far Tommy will get. Okay, I've gotten so many emails. Are you going to be here Tuesday night? Yes. When is Tommy going to be here Tuesday night? No. Does anybody pay attention? I don't think so. Okay. So, and I get the same thing with the with the Sunday night class on on every every week. I say this is what we're going to do. Next week we're going to meet. The next week we're going to. And then I get all this stuff during the week. Are we meeting this week? Yes. No, we're not meeting. No Bible study methods class this week. I'll be in Kiev. No Bible study methods class the next week. For three weeks, they're off. Okay. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee, yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer. Scripture says that when we uh, stop walking by the Spirit, we're walking according to the sin nature. Therefore, we have to confess our sins, and God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So let's bow our heads together. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer so that you can make sure you're in fellowship with the Lord. Then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful that we have this time to come together to 
think about your plan for our lives, to think about your word, to think about uh, how we can better serve you and serve one another. Father, as we continue our study in Acts, we pray that you would help us to see the principles that are laid out here in these chapters and that the that they illustrate. And Father, we pray that God the Holy Spirit will drive home these principles in our souls. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We're in Acts chapter 27. I stopped somewhere around uh, verse 21 last time. We stopped in the middle of a crisis point for the Apostle Paul because he is on a ship that has been tossed and turned through the various uh, storms that have been sweeping across the Mediterranean. They have not been able to make any headway at the time, and it looks very much as if they are they're not only going to lose their cargo, which has taken place already, they've had to dump a good bit of their cargo, or as we say in Texas, they've had to tump it into the sea. Just seeing if anybody's listening. And um, and as a result, they've, they've had quite a financial disaster already, because remember, it was a ship that was loaded with wheat. This was typical of that time that these... Uh, ships would uh, travel from Alexandria uh, east along the eastern end of the Mediterranean, known as the Levant, then across the southern part of, of what is now modern Turkey, and then they would sail across to Italy bringing uh, wheat to Rome. I mean, they'd sail across to Italy bringing wheat to Rome. Now, along the way, they, they, from the very beginning, they met adverse winds. And once they sh- changed ships, when they left, um, I think it was uh, Myra, when they left there. By the way, I learned an interesting fact about Myra uh, this last week. Myra was the home of Santa Claus. Just thought you all wanted to know that. Otherwise known as St. Nicholas. He was the bishop in, in Myra in the uh, early part of the... Uh, fourth century, and he was one of the delegates to um, to the uh, Council of Nicaea. And at the end of the Council of Nicaea, he went to Jerusalem to stay at a monastery there for a year. And there's a place actually now there's a a, a church there, uh, but it's right next. It's in sort of the residential area in the in the Christian commu- Christian quarter. Uh, in Jerusalem. So I actually ran across this article about some, some, uh, Christian woman was writing about the fact that they had rented a place in Jerusalem and the kids found out that St. Nicholas actually lived next door at one time. So that was a, they went into the whole history. So that was kind of an ironic, interesting thing that he was from Myra. So recently there was a dust up because one of the commentators on uh, Fox News commented that that uh, Jesus, or at least it was reported, she said Santa Claus was white and Jesus was white. Santa Claus was was from the area. Uh, Saint Nicholas was from the area of uh, central southern Turkey, probably Greek background, and uh, Jesus, of course, was Semitic. I don't know why people today in these ethnic battles can't get these issues right. Everybody wants to claim that he's whatever their ethnicity is. He was Jewish. He wasn't Caucasian. The Renaissance artist got that all wrong. He wasn't Caucasian. He wasn't African. He wasn't Hispanic. He was Jewish. And he looked like a Middle Eastern Jew uh, would look at the time. So 
Anyway, that's our little sidetrack there. So after they changed ships in Myra, things got really desperate for them as they headed east. They had to take shelter uh, coming around um, coming around Crete, and then uh, they got blown off course, and they almost uh, got blown too far south. Here's the route here. Almost were blown too far south. Uh, to get caught in these shoals off of the coast of North Africa. And that's where we left them last time as they basically lost control and they just have to go before the wind wherever the wind takes them. And sometimes in our life, this is our point of application, sometimes in our life that's what we feel like, that God is directing us but we don't have a clue where his sovereignty is taking us. Things are happening in terms of circumstances that are beyond our control. They're not at all what we expected. But what we have to do is learn to adjust our thinking to the plan of God and to relax and let God be in charge and to trust him as the proverb states in Proverbs 3, 4, and 5, and he will make our paths straight. That is exactly what happens with the Apostle Paul. And because of that, the Apostle Paul is in a crisis situation where everyone on board the ship thinks that this is the end and they're going to lose their lives and there's nothing they can do about it. Paul's the only one who doesn't lose his head. He's the only one who isn't panicking. And he's the only one, uh, therefore, who can think clearly, calmly, and objectively and he's the one who can give proper guidance, and that's what we're going to see uh, this evening. Just to remind you of some promises that Paul had uh, previously. In Acts 9, God promised that he would uh, <clears throat> take and be a witness before Gentiles, before kings, and before the children of Israel. This is expanded later on in Acts 23.11, which is the promise that is in the background to these events in chapters uh, 24, 25, 26, 27, 28, that the Lord told him that he would testify and be a witness for him in Rome. This is certain. So Paul, unlike those of us who are in this room, has a specific promise regarding his destiny, but there's no time factor there. God didn't say you will... Uh, witness in Rome by the end of the year or by the end of next year or by the end of the decade. He just says, you'll be in Ro my witness in Rome, which could be at any time. So Paul has to, in the meantime, Paul has to walk day by day trusting the Lord to provide for him because even though he knows that the end game is certain that he's going to end up in Rome, he doesn't know what will happen in between. But he does know that in life-threatening situations, his life is not going to be lost, that God is going to protect him. We know that God has a destiny for us. It may include death. Uh, we don't know. Uh, we don't know when that will happen, but we know the same principle that, that uh, the Apostle Paul was uh, was trusting in, that God is in control and so we have to relax in whatever the circumstances are at the moment so that we can be an effective witness for him. And we can't be an effective witness if our, we have a brain seizure, if we have a spiritual seizure where we just can't think, we quit trusting the Lord, we start operating on our sin nature, and we start uh, panicking and letting fear and anxiety take over. So we have to learn to relax. Now, like last time, I'm going to put this map 
up on the screen. I think I'll switch over to this one so we see uh, the section with Italy over there, and that will give you a frame of reference as we go through uh, the material in the remainder of this chapter and into chapter 28. One of the things we note in this chapter is that there is a tremendous amount of detail given. The writer of Acts, the human author, is Luke the physician. And Luke, we know, has joined Paul on this journey because in Acts 27.1, we started seeing the uh, second, I mean, excuse me, the first person plural pronoun used, and Luke began to write about we. We waited for the ship. We got on the ship. So he is now traveling with the Apostle Paul along with another young man from Thessalonica, uh, Aristarchus. And they are uh, taking care of the Apostle Paul and seeing to his physical needs and helping him along the way, plus encouraging him in the midst of these uh, difficult circumstances. But Luke is telling the story, just like he did in the Gospel of Luke, he's writing a good story. And he's giving us a lot of detail because he's building to a climax and he's building a lot of tension into the story related to all of the, um, all the storms and the disasters that are taking place, creating a sense of, uh, uh, of tension in the reader wondering, is the Apostle Paul actually going to get to Rome and how is God going to uh, protect him and get him out of this uh, this particular mess. This was a, uh, just as today, it was very much a part of the uh, standard writing techniques of Greek novelists uh, during that same time period. One of the other aspects that we see of this is the detail that Luke gives us is, uh, it indicates that he had a good understanding of the workings of an ancient ship. He was there. It gives it the whole story, that sense of authenticity. There are many liberal scholars in the 19th century who approach Scripture from the vantage point that this really isn't the Word of God. This couldn't have taken place. These are just legends and stories that were made up along the way. In fact, we're told that at the end of the 19th century, there was a group of Scottish unbelievers who decided to expose all of the errors in the Bible. And they designated one of their own to travel to all the places that Luke mentioned in Paul's visits to investigate and to study them to prove that the writing of Acts, the travelogues in Acts, were completely inaccurate and and not dependable. The man they chose was known as Sir William Ramsey, and Sir William Ramsey made his way to uh, the Mediterranean, went to all the places where uh, Paul went, and studied everything in detail, and he concluded that Luke's account of Paul's, uh, Paul's journeys were accurate in every single detail. As a result of that, uh, Sir William Ramsey became a Christian, and he is noted because he wrote a number of excellent books, including one called St. Paul, the, the Traveler and Roman Citizen. He wrote another one on the seven letters to the seven churches in uh, Revelation. He wrote another one on uh, Luke and the Star of Bethlehem. And the early part of the 20th century, he was one of the most widely read 
uh, authors because he had traveled to all of these locations and he studied them. He was familiar with the archaeological uh, work that had been done in these locations up to that point in time, and he was uh, very dependable. So this just shows, again, that we can depend upon the Word of God to be historically accurate, that the Word of God is not just inspired in areas related to faith and practice, as some people put it in their doctrinal statement. What's It is true in everything related to faith and practice, but everything else as well. That's the subterfuge in that sort of a doctrinal statement. It's not, it's not what they say that's wrong, it's what they don't say. Uh, the Word of God is accurate in every detail, historical, geographical, economic, every detail that it touches upon. So last time we ended up here as the ship had come off of the uh, southern coast of Crete, headed around this island, Cauda, which is just a, uh, 23 miles off the coast of Crete, and it did not have any harbor. There was no place for them to have any shelter uh, from the wind, but there was enough shelter for them to take the dinghy that the, that the ship had and to attach it uh, to the, uh, bring it on board and to attach it more securely uh, to the ship itself. Then they were blown off course down to the south, where, as I mentioned earlier, they avoided, uh, narrowly avoided being blown too far south to be caught in the shallows of Sirtis, which refers to an area of quicksands and shoals that are located just off of the uh, coast of uh, Libya here in the Mediterranean. Now, at this point, Paul speaks for the second time. We find this in Acts 27, 21. And this is when Paul really begins to challenge them with his own testimony and his own faith in God. We read in verse 21, but after a long abstinence from food, so as the men had gone for many days, we're told in verse 20, as they'd gone for many days without food, they were becoming, they would have been becoming weak. So in verse 21 we read, after a long abstinence from food, then Paul stood in the midst of them. So we see that he moves into a leadership role because believers have doctrine in their soul because they can trust the Lord, because they understand uh, the plan of God. They can move into leadership positions when everybody else is, is falling apart. And this time he reminds them, by starting off by saying, men, you should have listened to me. Now, to remind you, back when they were uh, coming around Crete here and seeking to uh, harbor uh, at Fair Havens, uh, everybody wanted to keep going, and Paul said, no, if you keep going, you're going to risk everything, and you'll probably lose everything. He wasn't speaking from revelation there. He was speaking from his own experience and his own background and his own wisdom. And so he had warned them against this course of action, but nobody had listened to him, and now disaster is upon them. So he reminds them of this. You should have listened to me and not have sailed from Crete and incurred this disaster and loss, and he is speaking about the fact that now they've had to dump the uh, wheat into the ocean, and they they are lo- losing their uh, losing the money, the investment in the ship, and they may lose the ship in their own lives. At least that's their fear. Then in verse twenty-two, he challenges them, he exhorts them twice. He exhorts them one in verse twenty-two, again in verse 
uh, 25. Each time he says, I urge you to take heart. This is an idiom indicating to gain strength. He says, I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. I'm sure that if you were sitting there listening to him, you would be wondering how in the world can he say that? How can he make such a dogmatic statement that none of us will lose our, lose our lives, but only the ship? It's a dogmatic announcement that comes as a result of revelation from the Lord, which is what he begins to explain in verse 23. There he says, for there stood by me in this night an angel of the God to whom I belong, and whom I serve. Now, when he talks about this, he's talking about the fact that there's a, a real angel. He doesn't, he's not just had a dream, but God has sent an angel, and the term angel means a messenger. The initial function of angels was to serve as messengers of God and to carry out various functions in the universe long before God ever created the human race. And so this angel is sent with a message to Paul, and that message is recorded in verse 24. But before we get there, I want to say something about this this uh, sort of circumlocution that Paul uses to refer to God. He doesn't say the, an angel of the Lord. That, of course, would be a more technical term, probably a ref- in the Old Testament that was a reference to the Lord Jesus Christ. It's used a couple of times in the New Testament, but only as an angel. Uh, an angel of the Lord, not the angel of the Lord. Uh, here it's simply an angel of not God, or not just the God, not just the Lord God, but he says the God to whom I belong and whom I serve. Now that tells us something about the context of of Paul's listeners. He knows he's speaking to pagans, most of whom do not believe in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Uh, he knows that they believe in the God uh, in any number of different uh, Roman or Greek deities, if they believe in any at all. And so he is making a contrast between the God whom he serves and whom he worships and their gods and goddesses. He doesn't want to uh, let his talk about God get sucked into their frame of reference. This is always what happens with with human viewpoint, uh, human viewpoint always seeks to sort of wrap itself around and envelop any kind of divine viewpoint ideas and to reshape it into its own image. This is part of the methodology of suppressing the truth and unrighteousness, as Paul states in Romans 1.18. Unbelievers do it and believers do it. So often we hear a truth of Scripture and our little sin nature says, well, I don't want it quite that way because that's really emphasizing the authority of God. I want it my way. And so we seek to redefine it. So Paul is not uh, going to allow that kind of redefinition to occur. He's not just going to use a generic term for God, which theos would be the Greek word that's translated here. He wants to give specific definition to the God he's speaking about, separating and distinguish him him from all of the other gods that are worshipped by those who who's, who are listening to him, and that's something that we should learn when we're witnessing to people. When we use terms like God and Jesus, too often we're so familiar with those terms 
that we sort of expect people to understand that. And we've we spend a lot of our times in time in life in context where people understand who God is and who Jesus is. But there are t- way too many people who are even churchgoers who really don't understand God or Jesus. First time I really became aware of this in terms of the general culture, I was in the seventh grade, which was a couple of years ago. Long before we see the advent of the secular culture that we have today. And I heard this from my seventh grade uh, literature teacher, English lit teacher, and she made the comment, and she was astounded. She said it was near Christmas time, and she was, um, I forget what the, what the exact context was of what we had read or what we had talked about it, but I was in the next class after this event, and she was just astounded. She said, you know, we had uh, a boy in the previous class who didn't know who Jesus was and had never heard of Jesus. Now, that was over 50 years ago. That's amazing. And today it's so much worse. There are many people have no clue who Jesus is at all. And they, if they ever hear the name Jesus, they hear it used as a some sort of profanity or curse word. They don't know who God is, the God of the Bible. They don't know who Jesus is. So we need to define that for people because if, if we just start off talking about God without defining who this God is that we're talking about, then we, we open the door to a lot, a lot of uh, miscommunication and misunderstanding because they'll just read into the term God whatever their frame of reference is. So we have to stop that at the very beginning, and that's what Paul is doing here, is he is making it clear that this God that he is mentioning is the one to whom he belongs and whom he serves. And this God sent an angel. This God is a God who interferes in human history and directs human history and sent an angel to direct Paul and to give him a specific promise. And that promise is, don't be afraid, Paul. You must be brought before Caesar, and indeed God has granted you all those who sail with you. And so it's become clear here that that uh, God is promising that, uh, once again, reiterating the promise we saw earlier from Acts 23, that Paul is indeed going to make it to Rome. But he, it's the way the angel says it. He says, you must be brought. This is a, a Greek word that indicates uh, absolute necessity. You must be brought before Caesar. So it's not something optional in the plan of God. And then he reiterates this, that God has granted you all those who sail with you. Not only will you survive, but everyone who is sailing with you will also survive. And then he draws an application and drives it home, again encouraging the men, therefore take heart, that is an idiom for be strong and courage, therefore take heart, men, for I believe, God, that it will be just as it was told me. So he is very confident in the promise of God, and when you're in a leadership position and you take a position of confidence, that is something that is catching Other people will depend upon you and rely upon your confidence. That will, in fact, give them confidence. And then in verse 26, we have a repetition of the same word 
In the Greek, the word dei that's translated must in verse 24 and again in verse 26, Paul says, however, we must run aground on a certain island. And what he's saying is, if this is going to work out, then we must run aground. That's not an option. We will lose the ship, but we will all survive. That's his promise. Now, this is an, a remarkable announcement because Paul, number one, shows that he's confident in this. It is the truth. He treats the angelic appearance as an objective reality. But then we learn that this is really the foundation for everything else that happens in this, in this episode until they arrive in Rome, that this is exactly what will take place. The ship will wreck. They will survive, and then eventually they will all make it to, uh, to, to Rome, both the sailors and the soldiers. And so Paul's encouragement to them captures their imagination. They're willing to follow his leadership, which is something we see in the rest of the story. So Paul's faith, his trust in God, gave him confidence and hope, which in turn becomes a foundation for confidence and hope uh, in the in the people. He has become the, he's taken over the leadership position. We don't hear about the captain or the or the centurion. It's Paul that is now taking over leadership because everyone else has already given up. They have they have no courage left uh, whatsoever. Now. <clears throat> Paul, I want you to note that Paul doesn't encourage them by saying the storm's going to let up. It's not going to be that bad. If we just have confidence, if we just claim God's power over the storm, he doesn't say any of those things. Uh, he doesn't promise that somehow the hardships will go away. He doesn't say that there won't be any loss. But he says that you will survive. So this goes against how uh, many Christians today are taught about hardship and difficulty. He doesn't say, well, I'm just going to trust God for a miracle. This is not the normal way in which God operates in this generation. This is not, and in this church age, this is not how God works. So we don't expect God to bail us out through some sort of supernatural intervention, but we're going to trust God through his promises to sustain us no matter what happens and what comes up. So Paul is uh, very confident because of the angelic announcement. Now, there's another aspect to this that comes up, and that is that in the, um, in the last part of the promise, Acts 27:24, the angel says that God has granted you, Paul, all those who sail with you. This is blessing by association. Now, where we learn about blessing by association initially in the Scripture is in the Old Testament. So I want you to hold your place here, and we'll just look briefly at an episode in Genesis chapter 18. Genesis chapter 18. This is the prelude to the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah when God brought judgment on the uh, homosexual perversity in Sodom and Gomorrah. And just in case you didn't catch the news today, a federal court judge in uh, Oklahoma struck down the Oklahoma uh, marriage protection law that mer defined marriage as between one man and one woman. 
Earlier in our last week, a federal court judge in Utah the week before struck down the Utah law. Now, you ought to pay attention to this because Utah is one of the, and Oklahoma are two of the most conservative states in the union. And there are lower court cases right now or cases working through the lower courts in Texas uh, and a number of other states. There's a decision made the other day, I believe, in Ohio, but I don't predict too much, but I would be willing to predict that in within two or three years, every state in the union is going to be forced to back down on on their opposition to same-sex marriage. That's the direction the culture is going. And now's the time that we, as churches, as conservative Bible-believing Christians, we need to continue to think through what our position is going to be on these things. Uh, because this is extremely serious, and there's going to be intimidation against churches eventually, just as we've seen with Obamacare and uh, trying to put pressure upon religious groups that oppose abortion to um, to uh, pay for or provide insurance for uh, employees that uh, want to have an abortion to go against their religious beliefs. And so this is something that is continuously... Uh, uh, before us. And it, it, we, if you go back to 1963 or 64, we've been on a downward trajectory. And there, there have been a couple of times when the trajectory is paused, but it hasn't reversed. And so don't think that somehow it's going to reverse just because we live in the great state of Texas. Uh, we're surrounded by places like Oklahoma and Arkansas and Louisiana and a few other places that are taking a strong stand in these issues, but it, it, I think things are moving to, to a, um, in a terrible direction, and there's going to be some sort of explosion. I don't know what that's going to look like. I'm not predicting civil war or, or states seceding, but you, we can't continue on a path when the federal government and federal judges are forcing states and forcing citizens to go against their their wishes and their desires, and the split between those who operate on pagan presuppositions, and that can be um, Republicans as well as Democrats, those who operate on pagan presuppositions and reject the authority of God's word are going to become more and more the overt enemies of those who do believe in the Word of God. And that can only end up in one terrible direction. And that's when the federal government finally starts uh, forcing, coming out of the closet. They've, they've, been, they've been trying to force their will on churches a number of ways, in, in very, very subtle ways, for the last two or three decades. But eventually they're going to come out of the closet and they're going to start putting a lot of uh, pressure on churches overtly, and things are, will really fall apart. It's, it's the direction that we've been going for several decades, and there's nothing on the horizon to indicate that there's going to be a change. The only thing that can change it is the grace of God. The only thing that can change it is people turning back to the truth of God's word. That doesn't absolve us of making uh, whatever efforts we can politically. You know, that's a mistake that too many Christians have made in the past. Even though the ultimate solution is the truth of God's word and a regenerate soul, 
we still have responsibilities as citizens in this country under the Constitution of this country to be as active as we can in preventing the success of evil. Folding up our hands and saying, well, you know, we don't want to dirty our hands by getting involved in politics is a rejection of your constitutional right as a citizen in this country to be involved in the political process. And if you give up as a Christian, you're basically giving in to evil. And that's just as evil as the other side. So we have to be involved, and we have to be involved according to the correct legislative procedures laid out by our Constitution. This is how our government works, is by citizens becoming involved. But when citizens do not become involved, then evil wins. I mean, when Christian citizens do not become involved, then evil wins. So we have to be involved. So otherwise, we're going to end up just like Sodom and Gomorrah. But this is the chapter before Sodom and Gomorrah, when God is uh, about to send these uh, two angels to Sodom and Gomorrah. And the background is that God, along with these two angels, has come to Abraham in his encampment at Amamra, which is which is near Hebron. And he comes to the oak trees of Mamre here, and he is uh, uh, has had dinner with uh, with Abraham, who's provided this dinner for them. And then the Lord says to himself. Verse 17, shall I hide from Abraham what I am doing? Since Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. In other words, if Abraham is going to have this position of rulership in the future, then I should start training him now for that future position. So God's going to talk to Abraham in light of what his plans are to see how Abraham handles it, sort of a, a little test case here. And he says to, um, says to Abraham in verse 19, excuse me, in verse 20, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and because their sin is very grave, notice that's God's opinion of homosexuality, it's a grave sin. It doesn't mean they're going to go to hell because they're homosexual any more than anybody else is going to go to hell because of any particular sin. It's because uh, all sin has social consequences, and some sins have more devastating social consequences than other sins. And so because of that, this sin has to be dealt with. And so God says... Uh, in verse 21, I will go down and see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come against me. If not, I will know. And then the men turned away from there. These two angels are sent on a recon of Sodom and Gomorrah. But Abraham stands there before the Lord. And in verse 23, uh, Abraham comes to God and says, Would you also destroy the righteous with the wicked. See, his nephew Lot and his family are living in Sodom. And so Abraham says, are you going to kill the righteous along with the wicked? Suppose there were 50 righteous living within the city. Would you also destroy the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous that were in it? Far be it from you. Notice how he is arguing and reasoning with God. He's saying, God, this would be unjust if you were to slaughter 50 righteous men, even though all of the rest deserved it. 
Far be it from you, verse 25, far be it from you to do such a thing as this, to slay the righteous with the wicked, so that the righteous should be as the wicked. Far be it from you, shall not the judge of all the earth do right. That's his point. God, you're going to do the right thing. This is not right. This is not righteous for you to slay the righteous with the wicked. So the Lord said, you're right. If I find in Sodom 50 righteous within the city, then I will spare all the place for their sakes. And then Abraham backed it off a little bit, and he came along and said, um, suppose there were five less than the 50 righteous. In other words, if there were 45, would you uh, destroy all the city? And he says, if I had 45, I won't destroy it. And then Abraham backed it off again. Suppose there were 40 found there. He says, well, I would not do it for the sake of 40. Then Abraham said in verse 30, let not the Lord be angry, and I'll speak. Suppose 30 should be found there. The Lord said, I wouldn't do it if there were 30 there. In other words, the even though all the rest of the city is wicked and evil and deserving of punishment, they're going to be blessed by being associated with these 30, 40, 50, 45, or 50 that were there. And so eventually he cranks it all the way down to 10 in verse 32, and suppose 10 would be found there. And the Lord said, I would not destroy it for the sake of 10. So what happens is God's going to remove the few that are left, Lot and his family, and then none will be left to, no righteous would be left in Sodom, and so then he will bring judgment upon them. But that's the principle laid down in the earliest book of the Bible, just about, earliest episode like that, that we have. Job was probably written about that same time, but that is uh, that tells us that God is going to bless the unrighteous by the presence of the righteous. Same principle we see here with Paul. Now, verse 27, back to Acts chapter 27, verse uh, 27. It says, when the 14th night had come, this would be the 14th night after they had left Crete. When the 14th night had come, as we were driven up and down in the Adriatic Sea, about midnight, the sailors sensed that they were drawing near some land. Now, if you look at this map, here you have the Ionian Sea mentioned here, and up here, the Adriatic. In the ancient world, the Adriatic Sea extended all the way down into the central part of the Mediterranean, and they refer to that as um, as the Adriatic or the Hadriatic Sea. The sea to the north that we call the Adriatic Sea was referred to as the Gulf of Adria or the Ionian Sea, as you can tell from the map. Now, as they are driven, they're being driven towards Malta, and now they've come close to it, and they're starting to take uh, soundings. And uh, the sailors have sensed that they're drawing near land. They don't know what land it will be. And they took soundings and found it to be 20 fathoms. And when they had gone a little further, they took soundings again and found it to be uh, 15 fathoms. And so at this point, they recognize that, uh, that they're getting close to land. 20 fathoms is about 120 feet. 15 fathoms is about 90 feet. A fathom is about... 1.85 meters, or just short of six feet. It's originally the width of a man's hands, arms out, outstretched. 
So they're, they're afraid of running aground, and the way they seek to resolve that is to drop four anchors from the stern in order to create a drag and to keep the bow pointed uh, forward. And it's nighttime, and so they can't see real well. It's cloudy, it's raining, it's dark. They're just trying to stabilize their position until they can see what is going on around them. In verse um, 30 we read, And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship, so they've panicked now, they're not going to pay attention to anything, and they're going to jump off the ship, um, and they had taken the the dinghy that they had put on the ship, and they've gotten that down into the water, and uh, while they're putting out the anchors, they've been uh, trying to protect themselves. And at this point, Paul addresses the centurion in verse 31, and says, uh, and, and says, unless these men stay in the ship, you can't be saved. If they bail out, uh, there won't be any sailors left. We won't survive, and then things will fall apart. What this emphasizes is a great illustration of divine sovereignty and human responsibility. On the one hand, God has made a promise, a promise that is certain and that cannot be changed. But on the other hand, we've got a problem with human volition. And human volition is still working, and these guys have, have panicked, and they want to jump ship. And so the Apostle Paul, rather than just throwing up his arms in some sort of fatalism and saying, well, you know, no matter what happens, God made a promise, he goes to the centurion and the soldiers, exercising leadership, initiative, and responsibility, and having them take action to make sure that the sailors are not going to be able, are not going to be successful in jumping ship. So we see the balance between the sovereignty of God and how he allows and works together with the free will of man. Uh, he, he, the free will of man is real, but it operates within and in a way that God determines compatibility uh, with God's, God's own will. So again, and we also note that Paul, because of his confidence in God, is able to provide uh, leadership for everyone, including the sailors and soldiers. In verse 32, we see the reaction from the soldiers as they cut away the ropes from the uh, dinghy and let it uh, fall away from the ship. And then in verse 33, we read, and this is Paul's fourth statement, As day was about to dawn, Paul implored them all to take food, saying, Today is the 14th day. You've waited and continued without food and eaten nothing. After two weeks, they're pretty weak, and they're pretty tired, and Paul understands the need for nourishment. So they uh, get out food, and they eat, and he makes a promise that this is the day where it's all going to end, and not a hair will fall from the head of any of you. Now, We've been studying the last couple of weeks in Bible study methods about idioms and figures of speech. This is a figure of speech. When you look at a a verse in Scripture or a phrase or a statement, and that statement cannot be taken literally, just doesn't make sense. Why would Paul be concerned about whether they're, they're having a receding hairline or they're going to have one or two hairs fall out of their head? That's not the point. So then it must be taken in some sort of figurative sense. And it is a figure of speech related to 
uh, God's protection from them. God won't let the least little thing uh, harm them. God is going to completely and totally protect them and provide for them even in the midst of these terrible circumstances. So he, he encourages them to eat, and after he said this, he stops and gives thanks for the food. This is what we should always do whenever we eat. We call it saying the blessing. What we're doing, according to uh, Acts here, is that we are ta- we, we're giving thanks for the food. In 1 Timothy 4, 3, and 4, we're a- asking God to sanctify or to set apart the food for uh, the, for our own bodies, for the nourishment of our bodies. And so this is what he does. He breaks the bread and gives thanks to God. He's not having a communion service on the deck of the ship while it's being tossed about in the storm. There's some people who suggest that. Whenever they see a phrase like taking bread and giving thanks, they automatically jump to something like that. By the way, this ship is probably quite large. In the ancient world... In the ancient world, a ship of this type might be, uh, the average size was about 180 feet long and about uh, about 50 feet wide. That's twice the size of the Mayflower, by the way. Looked that up this morning just to check that out. I wonder how large the Mayflower was. So this is about twice the size of the Mayflower. Remember, there's about 270-some-odd, 76, I think, on this ship. And it, they sometimes could hold as many as 600, we're told. So uh, there are there's a large number here. In fact, verse 37 gives the number 276 on the ship. So it's a large ship, and there's they're passing out all the food to everyone, and Paul is relaxed. We're going to eat. We're not going to just stuff our faces as fast as we can. Uh, he exercises stability and control uh, for himself, and this provides leadership for everyone on the ship. So the result is verse 36, they were all encouraged and also took food themselves. And then Luke comments that there were 276 persons on the ship. Verse 38, so when they had eaten enough, they then lightened the ship and they threw almost all of the rest of the wheat into the sea. They probably kept some for ballast to give some weight there, but uh, for the most part, they threw out all the rest of the wheat into the sea because they're not going to need it anymore. It's just going to drag the ship down, make it heavier. They want the ship to be as light as possible, to ride as high in the water as possible, to make it over any shoals or sandbars. Then in verse 39 we read, when daylight came, they did not recognize the land. But they observed a bay with a beach. Today it's called, guess what it's called? St. Paul's Bay. How original. They observed a bay with a beach onto which they planned to run the ship if possible. They let go the anchors and let them into the sea so that now the ship can be can run uh, freely before the sea. They loosened the rudder ropes and hoisted the mainsail in the wind so that they could pick up whatever wind they could that would drive them into the sh- shore. But what they didn't count on was there was a place where two opposing currents came together uh, coming from coming around the island, and this created a sandbar going into this bay. And so at that point, uh, they were still too heavy. The ship ran aground. And the, the bow stuck fast and remained immovable 
but the stern was then broken up by the violence of the waves. And then uh, the soldiers came up with a good plan where uh, we want to make sure that the uh, that the that the prisoners don't escape. So they came up with a plan to kill all of the prisoners. But the centurion, again we see this centurion, he likes Paul, he takes care of him, he has respect for him, and he wants to save Paul, so he stops them from killing the prisoners, and then he gave orders, now's the time, for those who could swim to jump overboard and swim to land, and for the rest to take boards or whatever they could from the ship, and then use that to as a floating device to get into uh, to get into the land. So in verse 40, 44, we read, And the rest, some on boards and some on parts of the ship, and so it was that they all escaped safely to land. So what we see here as we conclude chapter 27 is we see an example of God's sovereign control, not only over the ship and over the lives of those on the ship, but in a broader picture, his sovereignty over the life of Paul. But even in terms of the sovereignty over the life of Paul, we see how he's able to protect Paul. He's able to bring Paul to his ultimate destination. But even in the midst of that, Paul has freedom to exercise responsibility towards God and to make decisions all along the way. We see a great picture of how the sovereignty of God and the free will of man works together. Uh, We also see a parallel to events in the life of Jesus where he uh, was in control of the winds and the waves on the Sea of Galilee and how he used uh, the storms to teach about the power and the authority that he had over the storms. And so Paul is doing the same thing with reference to God. Now we come to chapter 28, and 28 opens in verse 1. Now, when they had escaped, that is, escaped from the danger of the sea, they found out that the island was called uh, Malta. And uh, according to uh, Strabo, the meaning of Malta was meant uh, refuge. Now, Luke doesn't make anything out of that etymology, but that's how it had been named at some time in the past. It's located here on the map, as you see on the screen. It is 58 miles south of Sicily. It's 180 miles north of Africa. It has a length of 18 miles and a width of 8 miles, so it's not very large at all. The natives who lived there were Phoenician in origin. They didn't speak Greek. Uh, Luke refers them to them as barbarians from the Greek word barbaroi, because the Greeks thought that anybody who couldn't speak Greek, if they were speaking some other kind of language, they just sounded like they were saying bar, 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 just meaningless gibberish. And so they referred to all non-Greeks as barbarians. So they come to the island. The natives are showing them kindness, verse 2. They kindled a fire, made us welcome. Uh, because of the rain falling, because of the cold, they brought them uh, shelter. They brought them probably warm clothes, blankets, whatever they could to help them stay dry and survive. And in the process, the, the uh, survivors are helping to find firewood and to keep the fire going. Paul himself shows that he's not above that. He's not just expecting anyone to wait on him. He's out helping to find dry firewood. He's gathered a bundle of sticks 
lays them on the fire, and in the process, uh, it's, it's cold, it's uh, in the wintertime, so snakes are cold-blooded, so they ha- he, this viper has apparently uh, been among, in, in, the, in the wood, but it's not very, uh, very lively because of the cold. And Paul disturbs him, and he, and he bites and strikes Paul on the hand. This is a fulfillment of the one passage that we have at the end of Mark, in Mark chapter 16, where it says people will pick up serpents. This fulfills that. This is not telling people to pick up serpents. This is the, you know, the verses that the Appalachian snake handlers all go to, uh, to justify their really bizarre worship. Uh, but this is, has nothing to do with the Bible. The Bible, God simply predicted that there would be various miracles that would take place to authenticate uh, the ministry of the apostles as they carried out their ministry. So this viper bites Paul, seems to hold on. Maybe his fangs got caught. Some vipers don't bite and cling on. They just bite and go away, but apparently it seemed to get caught on his hand, and he shook it off. But the people have their superstitious background. They say, oh, this man must have been a murderer, some great criminal, and God is bringing judgment against him. But verse 5, he shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. God was miraculously protecting Paul. Nothing was going to prevent him because he must make it to Rome. So... They keep watching Paul, expecting him to fall down dead at any moment. And as soon as he uh, seems to survive, then they change their minds and said that he was a god. This isn't the first time that people thought that Paul was a god. And so uh, he would have taught them otherwise. At this point, I'm going to stop here because I don't want to get into the next section which deals with the healings that are taking place and particularly the healing of, of Publius. And we'll take a little time to talk about uh, healing and miracles related to the authentication of the credentials of the apostles. So we'll come back and talk about that after I return from Kiev. So let's bow our heads together and close in prayer. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study these things and be just to be reminded of your faithfulness and that you're in charge and that even though a lot of things happen in our lives that we don't expect, some things that can be quite traumatic, uh, nevertheless, it's our responsibility to adjust our thinking to your plan and to continue to trust you, that whether we have plenty or whether we have none, uh, nevertheless, we can be happy, we're able to fulfill your plan in our life, and trust in you because we have the resources that, that you believe we need in order to fulfill our mission that you've given us. And as Paul said at the end of Philippians, I can, uh, I've learned to do with a, a lot. I've learned to do with nothing. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And so we're able to face the challenges of life because we know that you are in charge. And we know that ultimately you will bring us into that safe harbor of your arms when we are absent from the body and face to face with the Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray this in his name. Amen.